Radiation Exposure Standards. The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, international nuclear regulators, and the industry itself sign off on existing radiation exposure levels as normal and safe. So don't worry your pretty little head about it, Missy. But when they do so, they're basing it on what would happen to an adult male body. And in that way, convincing you that this industry does not pose any threat to anybody's health and safety. And they should be allowed to go ahead with their business as usual. But then you hear from a genuine expert. One who has done a deep dive into internationally accepted data on the health effects of radiation exposure from the atomic bombs dropped on Japan. And she tells you... The little girls who were exposed in Hiroshima and Nagasaki got 10 times more cancer than the individuals who were young adult males who underpin our reference man. If women in this country knew that when they were exposed as little girls to any of the above, we got 10 times more harm than did the projected outcomes of the regulator's standards, right? They're trying to meet these standards that they call socially acceptable. And we, as a group, are suffering 10 times more than what that standard says. And it's invisible. It's never been disclosed. It's never been calculated. It's never been put into the equation. To me, if we as women knew that, it would be political power. Well, when Mary Olson of Gender and Radiation Health Project crunches the numbers and comes up with insights not usually shared by other so-called nuclear experts, and she has the data and footnotes to prove everything she says, you start to see the nuclear industry's manipulations of perception, as well as the long-hidden truths that reveal the deadly nature of that seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we learn about an exciting new informational program on radiation information for everyone. We talk with two of its creators, Mary Olson, founder of Gender and Radiation Impact Project, and Cindy Folkers, radiation and health hazard specialist at Beyond Nuclear. They talk about the major misconceptions we have about radiation, how that lack of knowledge allows the nuclear industry to get away with, well, what could be characterized as slow-motion murder, and how any of us can empower ourselves with accurate information on radiation to use in all of our engagements with the nukesters and the politicians who regulate them. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, 
Linda Pence-Gunter with the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story, and more honest nuclear information than we've yet learned was contained in the FBI bust of top-secret papers at Mar-a-Lago. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, August 16, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off in Ukraine, where more shelling of the 6th nuclear reactor Zaporizhia nuclear power plant has been reported, with both Ukraine and Russia blaming each other for the attack. There were reportedly 10 hits on the office and fire station of Europe's biggest power plant on August 11th. There is reportedly a deteriorating security situation at the plant as worker shortages add to a long list of concerns. Some Ukrainian officials say stirring panic could be precisely Moscow's aim, in the hope that international pressure will force Kyiv to make territorial concessions. Others say they fear Russia is laying the groundwork for a false flag attack it will blame on Ukrainian forces. Nearly half the residents of Enerhodar, the town next to Zaporizhia, have already fled. Among the impotent responses to this terror, foreign ministers from the G7 group of nations say Russia must immediately hand back control of Zaporizhia to Ukraine. The International Atomic Energy Agency, reliably pro-nuclear, has been demanding access to investigate but continue to be denied. Russia's has rejected the United Nations' call for a demilitarized zone around the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. As the head of Russia's nuclear, biological, and chemical protection troops, Major General Valery Vasilyev, has claimed that Russia has mined the nuclear power plant, this according to Energo Atom, and said, there will be either Russian land or scorched desert. The enemy knows that the station will either be Russian or no one's. And now Russian ex-president Dmitry Medvedev has issued a veiled threat, saying, let's not forget that the European Union also has nuclear power plants, and accidents can happen there, too. Here in the U.S., the search of former President Donald Trump's residence at Mar-a-Lago has yielded almost a dozen boxes of classified information, some of it believed to be dealing with nuclear issues. Here with more on that is this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story with Linda Pence-Gunter. While we continue to hold our collective breath over the terrible risks to the six reactors up origin nuclear power plant caught up in the Ukraine war zone, some pretty big headlines are grabbing attention back home here in the USA. We've now learned that among the top secret and other classified documents that the FBI found at Trump's sprawling Mar-a-Lago home in Florida, were documents pertaining to nuclear weapons. What those documents actually contained and whose nuclear weapons they were about has not been revealed and likely won't be because, well, they are top secret. This latest scandal, or possibly crime, raises some pretty big questions. Why were they or any classified documents at Mar-a-Lago at all? Does the former president see them as souvenirs, his personal property, or are more sinister forces at work? If these documents are about nuclear weapons, who else has seen them? And what were the plans for them once they had been effectively stolen? All such documents belong to the American people, not a defeated ex-president. All of this raises yet another question. Does it matter? Let's say the ex-president has shared these nuclear documents with his Kremlin friends. 
Do the Russians need to know how to obliterate us more times over than they already can with the nuclear weapons they already have and that were invented decades ago? How much worse than global annihilation can things get? Not that this diminishes in any way the seriousness of a former US president making off with documents such as these. There need to be consequences for these actions. But without trying to sound too cynical or fatalistic, the point I'm getting to is not whether one country or the other may now be able to develop an even more lethal nuclear weapon than before, or whether national security is at greater risk because an enemy country has had an inside look at our latest nuclear arsenal. What's important here is why this is alarming. It's alarming because it's a reminder of just what kind of fear is stoked by the continued existence of nuclear weapons. Weapons that don't need to be numerous to obliterate us all. Even the fires and smoke caused by an exchange between the relatively small nuclear arsenals of India and Pakistan could, for example, lead to a nuclear winter-like outcome and global starvation. The Mar-a-Lago raid may have been a reminder of democracy still at work, but the subsequent and already violent response by the growing far right in this country is an ominous warning of just how fragile our democracy is becoming. The existence of nuclear weapons means we must depend on rational human beings calling the shots from the White House, or for that matter, the Kremlin, Beijing, Downing Street, or the Elysee Palace. That's not a very safe bet. Both the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons call for the nine nuclear weapons countries to dismantle and eliminate their atomic arsenals, but they are doing no such thing. The war in Ukraine and the latest potential security leak of nuclear weapons documents in the US should serve to underscore just how essential it is that we continue to push our governments to get rid of all nuclear weapons in the world. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat, and that's this week's hot story. On the website, we will have a link up to the article, Spies Who Spilled Atomic Bomb Secrets and What Their Punishments Were nuclearhotseat.com under this episode number 582. In Massachusetts, new legislation seeks to slow Holtec's plant to discharge a million gallons of radioactive wastewater into Cape Cod Bay from the defunct and being decommissioned Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station. In announcing the bill, State Senator Susan Moran said, Holtex, the decommissioning companies, Holtex's announcement that the company would dump one million gallons of radioactive waste into Cape Cod Bay is already negatively impacting our communities. Even the perception of harm puts local industries at risk, and that is before we examine the real risk to our environment and health. Industries already placed at risk include tourism, real estate, and the fishing industries. In New Mexico, shipments of nuclear waste to the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant east of Carlsbad, the nation's only deep geologic repository for radioactive material, though it's low-level waste, are now in danger of being continued beyond the plant's planned closure in 2024. The leaders of WIP, as it's called, are seeking renewal of a 10-year permit that allows the site to continue receiving shipments, plus the state's approval of an expansion of the plant to store more waste. But advocates closely watching the plant for decades say such approval could open the door to an unending stream of radioactive waste transported across the country in large drums, on semi-trailers, along state roads and interstates. In California, on June 6th, the Voice of Orange County 
published what is considered a questionable, non-scientifically supported opinion piece written by Southern California Edison's public relations representative, John Dobkin. In it, he claimed the 3.6 million pounds of deadly plutonium-contaminated radioactive waste at the failed San Onofre nuclear generating station is, quote, completely safe, unquote. That statement has now been countered by an article, Misinformation About Nuclear Waste Does Not Protect the Public Safety, written by retired Rear Admiral Len Herring and Paul Blanche, a professional engineer and nuclear safety advocate. We'll link to that because it has good information for anyone dealing with nuclear waste issues anywhere. Are you listening, Southern California mainstream media reporters? In Japan, stomach cancer incidence rates continue to rise among women in Fukushima Prefecture. This marks the eighth consecutive year that such increases have been registered, and stomach cancer was also found to be more common among A-bomb survivors in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. At the remains of the Fukushima nuclear power plant, site of the disaster in 2011, construction of facilities needed for a planned release of radioactive wastewater into the Pacific Ocean next year is proceeding despite opposition from the local fishing community and neighboring countries. Chinese Ambassador Li Song called Japan's dumping of Fukushima nuclear-contaminated water into the ocean irresponsible and immoral, while Japanese environmental groups pointed out that much of the land near Fukushima has been left idle due to nuclear leakage and could be used to construct additional water storage tanks. But that dumping the water, quote, takes the shortest time and costs the least. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, let's face it. You're never going to get information like this, as well as what's coming up, In mainstream media, the nuclear industry's unending multi-million dollar propaganda uh, PR campaign keeps doing its job to divert, obscure, and manipulate the nuclear conversation. And most reporters give you a blank stare or change the conversation when you bring up nuclear issues. Now, they have a lot of excuses, reasons, too complex a topic, too hard to explain, takes too long, radiation is invisible and makes for bad graphics, damage from radiation can take years to show up, blah, blah, blah. In our fast-paced world of clickbait media impersonating journalism, where ratings, demographics, and advertising money count more than the desperately needed truth, Getting the underlying facts regarding nuclear issues noticed and accurately reported upon can be an exercise in heartbreaking futility. And that is exactly why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. Every week, this show looks at nuclear issues around the world to give you information on what's really going on, presented with context, continuity, and accuracy. That's why, if you've come to value Nuclear Hot Seat's work, The time to support us with a donation would be right now. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the red Donate button, and help us with a donation of any amount. How about $11 in honor of our recent 11th anniversary? Or the cup of coffee donation, $5. Maybe $5 a month. Be it a one-time donation or recurring support, donate what you can now. And know that however much you help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now, here's this week's featured interview. 
One of the most misunderstood aspects of nuclear danger is the impact of radiation on our health. Be it from leftover atmospheric bombs, uranium mining, nuclear reactor leaks, or the forever dangers of radioactive waste, our health is challenged and eroded by all levels of nuclear exposure. None of it is safe. While the industry does not acknowledge these dangers, I mean, come on, why would they when money is at stake? There are those who have dedicated their lives to revealing the ugly, inescapable truth of radiation risks. And today's two interviewees not only are in the forefront of exposing the radiation lies that underpin the nuclear industry, they have an exciting new training program open to those who are willing to learn the larger truth. Mary Olson is founder of Gender and Radiation Impact Project and started that group after 25 years as radioactive waste policy analyst and director of the Southeast Office of Nuclear Information and Resource Service. Our other guest, Cindy Folkers, has been radiation and health hazard specialist at Beyond Nuclear since 2007. Together with Dr. Ian Fairley, who is Vice President of the United Kingdom's Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, they have put together a new training entitled Radiation Information for Everyone. To learn more about it, I spoke with Mary Olson and Cindy Folkers on August 12, 2022. Mary Olson and Cindy Folkers, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. You two, along with Ian Fairley, have put together a Radiation Information for Everyone, a short online course on radiation biology and society. What is the thinking behind offering these courses and why now? I have a real desire to make radiation something that people understand as easily as the exposures that we all get all the time. It has been turned into a black box and something that only experts can talk about. And so I'm very, very committed to, on the one hand, bringing huge expertise and on the other hand, ensuring that we communicate to everyone, like our heading says, radiation information for everyone. I feel that, as Mary hinted, radiation has been made a big black box, something that's very scary to people, something that's difficult to understand, and something that isn't graspable. And while, yes, it can be a complicated issue, I think that we can present it in a way that is accessible to most people in a manner that will enable them to understand what it is, not fear it, but appreciate that there is damage from exposure to it, and to try and not only protect themselves, but to understand how radiation exposure is impacting all of society and be able to talk about it with experts so that they aren't able to obscure what has been going on with radiation in the decades that we have been exposed to it already. Indeed, we want to build political will so that when somebody says nuclear is clean energy, at least three quarters of the room says, like hell. You know, I was very excited to see that you were going to be doing this because Mary, I believe it was at the Waste Management Summit that took place in New Mexico right before COVID. It was the December before COVID hit. And there was a breakout session, very small one, where you were going to explain about radiation. 
and you explained it better, more succinctly and clearer in five minutes than I had heard in my previous years of doing this show. So I'm very excited that other people are going to have the chance to have not only your expertise, but Cindy's and Ian's at the same time, because there are so many misconceptions about what radiation is and what it does. So from your perspective, what would be some of the top misconceptions you think are out there? One that I have been challenging from day one of my experience with radiation is the idea that it's the same for everybody. When I started working on this set of issues in the early 1990s, professionals in health physics and policymakers in nuclear matters, including radioactive waste, had a statement that they would say over and over again. They'd say a millirem is a millirem is a millirem. In other words, they viewed radiation as something that was completely consistent and replicable, like an inch is an inch is an inch. And radiation exposure is not like that at all. And my own work has gone deep into the fact that biological sex is a factor in how uh, radiation impacts bodies. And so I think that's my number one thing is to help people understand that we have had a government and agencies and professions that perpetuate something that is completely wrong, completely wrong. Radiation is not one thing. It does not affect everyone the same. And you can't just plug and play um, exposures in one situation to another. Cindy? I would add to that that they may say a millirem is a millirem is a millirem. But what they knew when they started using this technology in the early bomb age was very much a millirem may not be a millirem may not be a millirem. And the reason that I say that is because I had published an article last year in the Journal of History of Biology that enabled me to research some of the underlying assumptions that were made in early in the nuclear atomic bomb age. They had suspicions early on, the weaponeers did, to the point where the Atomic Energy Commission had undertaken a project called Sunshine, where they went out and basically asked for parts of dead babies so that they could assess how much strontium-90 was in the bones of the dead children. And this was a worldwide, no kidding, body snatching program. And the problem with that, of course, besides the obvious ethical issue that goes along with that, was that they weren't even necessarily looking at the right thing to try and determine exactly what radiation was doing to us. They were looking for strontium-90, but they weren't asking the right questions. But the fact that they went out, that this was a classified program, and they took these body parts to examine them, especially for infants and babies and children, and they knew that there might be something going on with early life and that radiation may be impacting it and radioisotopes may be collecting in it in different ways, went to show me that they knew, they suspected. And all along this time that they were suspecting that there might be an increased impact to early life cycle stages. At the same time, they were accusing women of being radiophobic, they were taking the scientists like Alice Stewart and Dr. John Goffman, who were trying to show this and were seeing it in their studies, and they were berating them, and they were belittling them, and they were ruining their careers. All the time they were doing this, they suspected 
that those folks that were researching that, that suspected that there were increases in health effects were right all along. I've done a lot of research for a play that I'm writing about how radiation information was suppressed in those earliest days. And as part of the research that I did, I learned that before the Manhattan Project was even a going concern, General Leslie Gross, who was the head of it, went to some insurance companies to find out whether he could get insurance to cover the scientists for radiation exposure. But he couldn't go into details because that would break the privacy, the secrecy, the top secret nature of what this was. So he backed away from approaching the insurance companies and went, well, we'll just get the government to cover that. And of course, we know from the struggles that anyone from the government, the military or downwinders have been trying to get compensation from the government. We know how well that has not gone. Now, Mary, you had another point you wanted to bring up. Yes, it ties together my point about biological sex and Cindy's point about children. And this is something that we will definitely be teaching about. It's maybe unique to the United States, although I think the other countries in the world haven't gotten very far away from this, if at all, which is the use of a reference man for every assessment of awarding a license. Will it meet the radiation standards? Well, when they do all the calculations, they're only calculating for a young male between 25 and 30 years old. He has a defined height, weight. He's determined to be white. His lifestyle is industrial, meaning he lives in an urban setting. He gets his food from the grocery store. There's a temperature range. And all of this is used for the ongoing release of radioactivity by nuclear facilities to determine whether those releases are quote unquote legal or for the assessment of unplanned releases, whether they be accidents or other types of radioactivity coming into our environment. So there's a different situation in medicine, a different situation in naturally occurring radiation exposures. But in terms of our industrial society that permits and licenses and essentially creates a bag limit on how many cancers are acceptable, they are only looking at exposures to the adult male. So their whole little mythology about a millirem is a millirem is a millirem is perpetuated into a reference man is a standard man is a standard man with zero, zero consideration that when they started putting these facilities nationwide, near communities, in communities, that the exposures would be to the full population, to infants, to children, to women, to elders, and that reference man just doesn't stand as an individual who represents the full population because my work has shown and those of others that the reference man envelope is actually the most resistant part of the human lifespan. So they chose the part of our communities that will have the least amount of disease or ill effects from those radiation exposures. These things are not hard to understand once you dive in, but they certainly are not presented when you go to hear about, oh yeah, we're gonna have small modular reactors in Buncombe County where I live. Oh, chala, you know, I mean, this is the answer now. And it certainly is an answer, but not the right answer, and certainly not the right answer once you understand that you as a woman or you as a grandmother 
cannot find these regulations to be protective of your entire community. What effect have these distortions or this eradication of more accurate information about radiation done in terms of politics and the ability of the nuclear industry to keep moving forward its agenda? The analysis that I did in 2011 and Dr. Arjun Makajani did in 2006 with his team was looking at just the survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki because it's the only data set that has all ages and both genders. And you can look at the whole picture of what happened to those people who suffered such a horrific event. And the study is also horrific and I think it's immoral, but I think it would also be immoral to not tell you what I'm about to tell you, which is that the little girls who were exposed in Hiroshima and Nagasaki got 10 times more cancer than the individuals who were young adult males who underpin our reference man. So politics, if women in this country knew that when they were exposed as little girls to any of the above, we got 10 times more harm than did the projected outcomes of the regulators' standards, right? They're trying to meet these standards that they call socially acceptable. And we, as a group, are suffering 10 times more than what that standard says. And it's invisible. It's never been disclosed. It's never been calculated. It's never been put into the equation. To me, if we as women knew that, it would be political power. So it sounds like the courses that the two of you and including Ian Fairley in this have been putting together is intended to give us the knowledge that will hopefully spark some political action and some political power. But that's down the line. Let's look at the course itself to let people know what is happening. What makes these courses different from all of the different webinars, Zoominars, talks, lectures, YouTube videos, et cetera, that are out there that we are bombarded with and that we regularly have an opportunity to take a look at? What makes yours different? Well, I'm going to start off by saying that we're teaching. A webinar is a great opportunity to transmit information and have a little bit of dialogue but we're actually going to be creating an opportunity where people watch the information ahead of the live sessions. And in the live sessions, we're going to be actually engaging the group in exploration, in interrogating the presenters, but also bringing in their own questions and ideas and materials that they wanna share with us. We're not gonna be able to answer every question, that's not the point. The point is we're gonna help people begin to think about radiation and understand the history that we share and understand the opportunities that lie ahead. I would just add to that, that in the collaborative effort that we are, the three of us are taking to put these presentations together, which people will watch before they come to the actual discussion session, we are, engaging each other with questions that are not necessarily gonna be answered during our presentations either. And so we are coming with our own questions <laughs> to the discussion sessions, and they're gonna be good questions and they're gonna be informed questions. And we know that our audience will do the same and there will hopefully be out of that some follow-up 
as well. And we will build together a body of knowledge based on the questions that we have and the knowledge that we have so that we can then move forward with questions that actually make sense, with questions that we actually need the answers to. Because I find that at least, you know, with the radiation and health studies, they've been asking questions, but the questions aren't to the point. The questions have sort of been skirting a lot of the issues and not focused on, for instance, the disproportionate impacts, not just to women, not just to children, but to people of color and underserved communities. And the questions at the official level have not been questions that society needs to address the lived experiences that people need to have accounted for. That's one of the things that I'm hoping will come out of this too, is more learning, more questions, and that it's not just going to be politics. It's going to be actually impacting research questions. It sounds like not only the three of you, but those who will be attracted to this are going to form a real brain trust for evolving the information, sharing what we know, and maybe learning pieces of it that somebody's got that somebody else hasn't got. Who are you aiming this course for? Who is it intended for? And what do you hope will be accomplished by it? These classes are open. We are screening registrations a little bit because we want to be sure that it's appropriate for the intention that people bring. But so far, everyone who's registered is bringing wonderful intentions. We are charging because we want people to make a commitment. However, we also have a scholarship fund, so no one will be turned away because they don't have the ability to pay on a sliding scale that we've established. Right now, I would say our doors are wide open. We're welcoming people who are coming for our first sessions. And then Cindy and I have a hope that we will be able to tailor these offerings for very specific groups. Like for instance, for years, people have been telling me I need to reach out to organized labor representing airline workers because there's so much more radiation in space and airline workers tend to be predominantly female. And so our course on disproportionate impacts could be very valuable to that particular group of people. And there are other specific groups, I'll let Cindy say more, but she has a nice hobby horse that I agree with totally, which is that members of the media need some further training in radiation. So Absolutely. Cindy, you want to say Absolutely. more about that? I think that, well, there's not a whole lot to say, except that a lot of the media do need more training. They need to know the difference between a millirem and a millisievert. They need to understand the difference between an occupational worker and the public. They need to understand that a little teeny bit of radiation out in the environment may not be as high a dose for everybody in the world, but to the people living in a specific environmental area, that dose could be quite significant. There are lots of things about radiation exposure that the media, especially the media, need to know because they go into some of these places and they're going to be the ones on the front line reporting at places like Chernobyl and Fukushima. And they need to know not just for what they're reporting, but they need to know for their own protection as well. And I can't believe, I'm trying to think of an example, I can't believe that the some of the reporting that I've seen out of some of these areas well, like the BBC put on a so-called radiation expert who didn't know the difference between one millisievert and 20 millisieverts. 
And they had to retract the story the BBC did because this expert that they chose to use in the UK said that they were basically those two doses, one millisievert and 20 millisievert were the same. And they most certainly are not the same. And it was just, that's one egregious, particularly egregious example. But there have been others that I've seen. I haven't made a database of them because I just look at them and I think we can help them. (laughs) We can help them understand. And so I think that up to this point, there have been people with a certain agenda who have tried to capture the media narrative. And I think that we need to not be the other half of that to capture the media narrative. I think instead we need to be the piece of that that gives these reporters the tools to be able to ask the questions and understand what it is, what the data is that they're seeing, what it actually means. And I think that we can do that for them, not telling them what they're supposed to write, but telling them, but offering them the questions that they should be asking and having them understand the answers that they get. I would be interested in working with you on some presentation with that. I just jotted down radiation protection for reporters. And that would be protection for them physically if they're covering the story, but also in terms of the information they're sharing, protection in terms of making certain that they're getting the story right. Going in my file, Libby. (laughs) (laughs) We would love to do it. We're going to have a different roster each quarter. And so the next quarter will be 1st of 2023. Now, I want to just say a little bit in response to who else we might be trying to impact here, because I think, you know, workers in specific fields and reporters as workers in specific fields that have a lot of impact on a lot of people. Another group that I really want to impact are people who are in academic leadership positions, because we're going to get some pushback. What do you mean you're teaching these courses? You don't have any credentials. You're not part of some big academic institution. Well, first off, we're not offering any credit either. If somebody wants to get with us and get some continuing education credit, either medical or some other radiation related, great. We'll figure out how to make that viable. But I had the great good fortune of my first week of work in Washington, D.C., meeting Alice Stewart and hearing her present her paper. I had the great good fortune for the last period of my time in that job, which was with Nuclear Information and Resource Service, working directly with Rosalie Bertel. She was my mentor. We both hoped that I could find a graduate program and she could be my advisor. That did not pan out. So we decided to go ahead and do it ourselves without an academic institution. And in the middle, we have John Goffman's work, which we got hot off the press and we could call him up and ask him questions. We had Steve Wing at the University of North Carolina, Gillen School of Global Public Health, who did the reanalysis of Three Mile Island. We had a long list of people who are still in the field, Timothy Mousseau and well, we're working directly with Ian Fairley. I mean, I, I feel like I've got some gaps in my list, but the point here is that I, as a young educator working for a nonprofit organization, helping impacted communities, doing advocacy, and also educating Congress and various administrations in the White House level even, I had the great good fortune of sitting at these people's knees, of reading their work, of asking the questions, 
of really coming to understand the incredible importance of their contributions. I mean, going back to the first one, Alice Stewart is the one who discovered, because she looked, that an epidemic of childhood leukemia was due to the fact that pregnant women in the 1950s were being x-rayed during their pregnancies instead of today we use sonograms to monitor pregnancy. They were using x-rays. And it was her finding that that ionizing radiation was the cause of the children's illness. And it really was almost an epidemic level in the UK. And her work was enormously important to contributing to women and children's health. So again, each one of these researchers had a huge contribution. And I feel that if I don't help to have more people understand their work and their contributions, that I haven't done my job. And so internet, hello, Zoom, hello. Let's make this available to people. And Cindy, in a very, very interesting parallel path to mine, converged on disproportionate impact of radiation. It was about a year ago, I reached out to her and she to me, and we said, let's work together. And when I came up with this madcap scheme, she said she was all in. And she as well has been working directly with people who the rest of the radiation world, the rest of the public health world should be aware of. They need to know about the work of these individuals. And I really want anytime somebody pushes on us to say, hey, why are you doing this? I want to say to them, why aren't you? So on to the course. You have a series of them, and let's look at them individually in some detail. What will each course consist of? The first one is radiation and introduction. So give us an overview. That would be Cindy. Ian and I have been working together to pull this off. There's a total of five sections. Section one is going to be what is radiation? Internal versus external radiation's effects a little bit about some of the health studies that have come down the pike, the kinds of models of damage of radiation, specifically the linear no threshold model, which holds that there is no dose below which there will not be an impact, even to the lowest doses. But we are gonna get into some specifics because in order to understand what they are doing and how they communicate radiation damage and what they leave out, we need to get into some of the weeds. So that's the first, is what is radiation. The second section is going to be on cancer, how cancers arise, what the cancer rates are in the UK and the US. Ian is from the UK, so it's good to pull in their cancer rates as well as the US cancer rates, different kinds of cancers. And then there's going to be a third section on the sources of radiation, which will talk about background radiation and natural background radiation and industrial exposures. And that's going to walk through all of those different kinds of exposures. And then the fourth one is going to be on radiation risks. What is meant by risk, defining it. I mean, it means specifically there's a scientific definition of risk. So we're going to walk through that. And then we're going to talk about the disease endpoints, the non-cancer effects of radiation, the risks of cardiovascular disease. Yes, cardiovascular disease. It's not just cancer and stroke. And then finally, the fifth section is going to be on, do we need to tighten radiation safety limits? Which, of course, the answer to that is yes. But we're going to walk through what are some of the ways that we can do that and why we should and what 
the ICRP recommendations are based on. And I bring up the ICRP, which is the International Commission on Radiological Protection, because although they are recommendations only, and they don't really have any regulatory power, their numbers are a lot of what are relied upon by governments, by national governments to set radiation standards. So that's going to be the first class or course that we're teaching. And we come back to all that regulatory stuff in our third class. I haven't told Cindy yet that I have somebody I want to invite to co-teach with us, so I won't say who because I haven't talked to her about it. But I can tell you that we're going to have an additional presenter for the disproportionate impacts that we've agreed to and that is Ian Zabardi, who is a leader in the Western bands of the Shoshone Nation. And Ian will be talking about the disproportionate impact to Shoshone people. And I'm sure we'll generalize that appropriately if we have participants who want to talk about other nuclear contaminated areas. But the Shoshone people are some of the most um, nuclear impacted people on the planet because their lands include the Nevada test site and also many areas downwind of the Nevada test site. It would be wonderful to have Ian with us. And so you get the idea that we're going to be adding additional people as we go along. And we're thrilled to have colleagues who are stepping forward saying this looks like a good idea. You also have two other courses that have been mapped out and are intended between now and the end of the year. Talk about the one that's happening in October. In October, Cindy Folkers and I, Mary Olson, will be leading three sessions in the same week on disproportionate impacts of ionizing radiation. And this is disproportionate impact in multiple directions. But we certainly will be talking about disproportionate impact to children and to females of all ages. I mentioned that our co-presenter for one of the sessions will be Ian Zabardi, and he'll be talking about disproportionate impacts on indigenous people, specifically the Western bands of the Shoshone Nation who are at the Nevada test site area and were targeted for the Yucca Mountain site and just have a really long history of disproportionate impact to their people from U.S. federal nuclear programs. We're testing out different models. Uh, The first class is once a week. This one will be three classes in one week, October 25th, 26th, and 27th. Our first class is in the daytime Eastern. This is in the evening, 7 p.m. Eastern and we're just seeing what works, what people like. It will have the same overall format though that Cindy and I will be pre-recording talks. Those talks will be made available to the people who register. And then the real-time Zoom meetings will be discussion, question, answer, pushing all our limits in the sense of what do we know? What do we need to know? How can we see how this applies in our lives, in the world, and in decisions that are being made going forward? The third class will be in December. Same idea of having three sessions in the same week. And these will be back to daytime and we'll focus in on the how and why of US radiation exposure standards. 
And this one could seem really nerdy, but in fact, I think it's going to be where the rubber meets the road on nuclear proposals like transporting high-level nuclear waste nationwide or building small modular reactors or declaring a site clean after it's been remediated and going to be released to general use. There's all kinds of examples that are anything but nerdy. They are in our daily lives. Cindy and I will be leading this together. And as I intimated, I think we might have a third presenter, maybe more than a third presenter. Probably for the third class in December, I would focus on how they've ignored the science and what they've come up with, sort of unpacking the what is called a permissible dose, right? And how it was originally called an acceptable injury limit, but they didn't like that term, so they changed it. I've never heard that term before. It's horrible, but it's true. And I was appalled when I first saw that. Yeah, in the late 40s, early 50s, it was an acceptable injury limit. And they changed that to permissible. I'm not Um, surprised. Well, yes, but acceptable injury limits, see, that's where all the devils are exposed in the language that they chose to use in the day. So again, it sort of belies what they were actually thinking at the time, which is very telling. So that's kind of the vision that I have for those two courses and and how those two courses will sort of express two coins of the disproportionate impact issue. I haven't had a chance to tell Cindy, and this is definitely subject to whether I feel that it's okay to travel in the COVID world, but I am registered to go to the International Committee on Radiological Protection, otherwise known as ICRP International Symposium in British Columbia in November. So if I do that, I will be hot off the ICRP plate in time for this December session. So watch out. (laughs) Well, I'll be happy to capture any of that heat that you have to share immediately upon your return or on site if you prefer it that way. We don't want the steam to be building up inside your head. We'd rather have it coming out your ears. (laughs) So here are the first three courses that you have put together, and obviously they are important beyond a single exposure to it. Will they be offered again in 2023? Is that part of your thinking as well? (laughs) The sky's the limit. When you put me and Cindy together, you might get us to repeat the same thing. And gosh, wouldn't that be nice for people who missed it? But there's so much to cover that we might just decide to say, oh, hell with it and post it all on YouTube once it's done and say, if you want to watch that one, go do it. I don't know. We haven't talked about 2023 yet, except for that we wrote down radiation protection for reporters with Libby Halevi. That's going to happen in 2023. Beyond that, I really don't know. I think we want to wade in. And before we have the water up to our neck, you know, before it's over our head, we will get enough experience to tell ourselves, golly, yeah, we want to do this one over again because it was so rich and wonderful. And now we already have the talks recorded. Wouldn't that be just great? Or alternately, we may just have so much fun doing it that we just want to keep going with the rest of the other topics. Because believe me, we could have a new topic every month for the rest of my life and it still wouldn't do the job. It is hard to answer your question about the future because I think that the future courses will morph and they will morph in response to the questions that we get and the interest that we get 
from various corners, aspects of society, and what research has come out, and the things that are changing every day in low-dose radiation research. And so we want to learn and teach. I don't think that we would be doing our jobs if we knew what was coming, because part of our job is not only to share what we know, it is to share what others know with everyone and with ourselves and thereby move all of this forward into what will hopefully be a greater understanding for everyone involved. I support that completely. And that's what I try and do with Nuclear Hot Seat by putting forward experts such as yourselves. I don't care about what they say about degrees or affiliations, but you guys know what you're talking about. And I've come to rely upon the expertise of both of you and Ian Fairley and so many other people who are the genuine experts in this. Mary, what is the website for people to go to? Go to genderandradiation.org. And that is A-N-D, and. So genderandradiation.org. And on the navigation bar, there's a link for classes. And it will take you to one page that gives information about all three of the short courses we've talked about here. And we're using the overarching title, Radiation Information for Everybody. So at some point, we'll uh, start promoting it with that header. I'm thrilled to be working with Cindy, and I'm thrilled that people like yourself are interested in both attending and becoming a presenter with us. And we invite others to reach out to us because this is a community and we want to be building our community. I agree with everything that Mary said. We appreciate anybody's offer of help for this. This is going to be a great undertaking. I think it's going to open up a lot of people to a body of knowledge that they didn't know they needed, but they do absolutely need. It's going to be a really fantastic undertaking. And Libby, thank you so much for having us on your show. Yes, thank you. Always a pleasure, especially when I get to share not only the two of you, but information that's terrific that can be of so much help to so many people. So for now, Cindy Folkers, Mary Olson, thank you so much for putting these courses together. And thank you for joining me this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. Thank you. That was Mary Olson, founder of Gender and Radiation Impact Project, and Cindy Folkers, Radiation and Health Hazard Specialist at Beyond Nuclear. We will have links up to the EPA Annual Dose Calculator. According to Cindy, it's not perfect in some of its assumptions, but it is useful. We will also have a link to a summary of the paper she published, Disproportionate Impacts of Radiation Exposure on Women, Children, and Pregnancy, Taking Back Our Narrative. And for those of you wanting to sign up for the first Radiation Information for Everyone program, we'll have a link up to that to all of these on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode number 582. Regarding the program, I will be there, and I hope you will be too. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. Hats off to the Oak Ridge Environmental Peace Alliance because they hung up all the flags of the 66 nation states that have ratified the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons outside of the Y-12 nuclear weapons factory in the U.S. 
We'll have a picture of that up on the website for this week's episode. And an early warning that filmmaker Oliver Stone is premiering a new documentary called Nuclear at the Venice Film Festival on September 9th. We already know that it is in favor of nuclear because absolutely no one who opposes it in any official capacity knew anything about this film. So another piece of propaganda online with Pandora's Promise is now about to be launched by a major filmmaker. We will have more on this in the coming weeks because, yes, there is a pushback being organized. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, August 16, 2022. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, nears.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, China.org, NHK.or.jp, KyotoNews.net, San Luis Obispo Mothers for Peace, theins.ru, msn.com, thedailybeast.com, washingtonpost.com, bbc.com, theguardian.com, huffpost.com, smithsonianmag.com, wmur.com, wickedlocal.com, latimes.com, voiceofoc.org, counterpunch.org, globaltimes.en, mainichi.jp, english.news.cn, e-stat.go.jp, telegraph.co.uk, climatecrocs.com, and the captured and compromised by the industry they are supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Our thanks, as always, to Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear for this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. Now, if you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week so that you don't miss a single episode, we make it easy. Sign up at NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the yellow box, put in your first name and email address, and every week you'll get one, count them, one and only one email with the link and short description of the show's content. Or if you prefer, sign up for Nuclear Hot Seat on any of your favorite podcast platforms, because we are on all of them. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to go to NuclearHotSeat.com and look for that red button. Click on it, follow the prompts, and whatever you can do to help will be really appreciated. This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you that the last thing anyone who opposes nuclear wants to be able to say is, I told you so. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.